Thanks very much. To begin with, let me just say that it's me who is really honored to be here and my sincere apology for not being able for extremely stupid medical reason, diabetic crisis and so on. I don't take care of myself properly to spend more time here with you. I'm really sorry. I feel ashamed for this. Next thing, uh, because of, uh, because I take you very seriously here, I decided to renounce the usual retelling, you know, all those boring, boring jokes that I repeated already 30 times. You remember, there was a guy who thought he's a grain of corn and encounters a chicken and then how the Montenegro people masturbate or all that, no? I decided to take you seriously. And I will do, I hope it will not be too much of you, a little bit over, one hour of a pure, more or less, pure philosophy. Uh, focusing on this crucial problem, why Hegel, can we still be Hegelians, what to do with Hegel today. This is part of a work in process. It's not finished with my big fat book. Because also the two members of my Slovene gang, Alenka Zupancic and Mladen Dolar, are working in the same direction. It is as if we were postponing till now this key question in our idolatry of Hegel. But can we really be simply fully Hegelian today? How, or rather, our answer is yes, but precisely, of course, by not simply doing the same thing and Hegel. So, how to displace, transform Hegel to be a Hegelian today? So, my apologies in advance if to some of you this will be boring, but this is where my heart is. I'm getting a little bit tired also with all those jokes of, uh, well, specifically tasteless jokes. Let me begin. <laughs> there are three, I claim and only three key philosophers in the history of Western philosophy. Plato, Descartes, Hegel. The proof of their privileged status is their extraordinary, outside the series, position in the series of philosophers. Each of the three not only designates a clear break with the past, but also casts his long shadow on the thinkers who follow him. These three philosophers, they can all be conceived as defining their posterity as a series of negations or oppositions to their own position. It was already Michel Foucault who noted that the entire history of Western philosophy can be defined as the history of rejections of Platonism. The problem for practically everyone after Plato was how to reject Plato. In a homologous way, all the modern philosophy can be conceived as the history of rejections of Descartes. Everyone, even today, usually begins with some kind of anti-Cartesian statement and not even to mention Hegel. Well, the entire post-Hegelian philosophy is how to overcome Hegel. So let me begin with Plato. Alain Badiou already enumerated in his uh, non-published seminar uh, 
six main partially intertwined forms of the 20th century anti-Platonism. First, we have the vitalist anti-Platonism, Nietzsche, Bergson, Deleuze. The idea is that one should assert the real of life becoming, the flux process of life becoming, against the intellectual sterility of Platonic idealism. As Nietzsche already put it, Plato is the name for a disease. Then we have the empiricist analytic anti-Platonism. Plato believed in the independent existence of ideas, but as Aristotle already knew, ideas do not exist independently of sensuous things whose forms they are. So the main counter-Platonic thesis of analytic empiricism is that all truths are either uh, analytic or empirical. Then we have the Marxist anti-Platonism for which Lenin is also to blame. The dismissal of Plato as the first idealist opposed to pre-Socratic materialists as well as to the more progressive, empirically oriented Aristotle. In this view, uh, Plato was the main ideologist of the class of slave owners. Of course, I totally oppose to this. I mean, if you know a minimum of the history of philosophy, you know, at least two things can be said about Plato's Republic. A, he explicitly states there that in his ideal Republic, all posts are open to women as well as to men. That is just a historical contingency that in the existing society, women are suppressed. He insists on this point. While Aristotle, the good liberal Aristotle and so on, as you know, uh, sexualizes ontology itself, uh, 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 positing a parallel between woman, man, and hile uh, morphe, matter, form. As to slaves, again, did you notice, if you maybe read Plato, that there is no, there are no slaves in his republic? While for Aristotle, again, the good liberal, slaves were something natural. You may even remember Aristotle's definition of slave as a talking, uh, talking instrument. Then, let me go on. We have the existentialist anti-Platonism. Plato denies the uniqueness of singular existence. He subordinates the singular to the universal. This anti-Platonism has a Christian version, Kierkegaard, like Socrates versus Christ, and an atheist one, Sartre, existence precedes essence. Then we have the Heideggerian anti-Platonism, Plato as the founding figure of Western metaphysics, the key moment in the historical process of forgetting of being, the starting point of the process which culminates in today's technological nihilism, as some leftists like to say when I was young, from Plato to NATO. One line. Then finally we have the democratic anti-Platonism of political philosophy from Popper to Hannah Arendt. Plato as the originator of closed society, the first thinker who elaborated in detail the project of totalitarianism. This is how things stand with Plato. Again, even immediately you have first uh, Aristotle, opposing Plato and then much more interesting Stoic opposition. And even, I think, the Neoplatonist mystics basically oppose Plato, claiming that 
logos or thinking, articulated thinking, cannot be the access to higher reality. You can only do it through some uh, mystical unity with the nameless one and so on and so on. Then, let me go on to Descartes. It, it's the same. We have also five, six versions of anti-Cartesianism. First, ecological. Your own ex-vice president, or the way he defined himself after his defeat, I quite appreciated that. You know that after his uh, defeat to George Bush, okay, very contested defeat, I know. You know that Al Gore liked to present himself as the guy who once was the future American president. <laughs> this shows a good Hegelian spirit, but nonetheless, unfortunately, Al Gore likes to refer to kind of a very cheap New Age uh, anti-Cartesianism, claiming that the Judeo-Christian tradition speaks about mankind's dominion over the earth, but it also charges mankind with stewardship of nature but that with Descartes only domination remains, no stewardship, so Descartes becomes the main metaphysical culprit of our uh, ecological crisis. Incidentally, I don't have time to go into it, but I'm a little bit tired of this game of how the root of political totalitarianism is philosophy, abstract conceptual thinking, I think, and here I'm decidedly on the side of Plato, maybe it's time to turn around the cards and to start blaming poetry. Speaking about 20th century experience, I'm more and more tempted to say no ethnic cleansing without poetry. Why? No, I'm not, first, not all poets. I mean, I am absolutely for authentic poetry. But, you know, there is one problem. The problem is that we are relatively decent human beings, relatively. What do I mean by this? If somebody were to tell me, let me take a knife and pick out your eyes or whatever, I would have some trouble, let's say. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? This was the great problem of so-called totalitarian regimes. You need something, some kind of ideological opium, I'm very traditional here, to, that is strong enough to make you overcome your, let's call it naively, why not, elementary decency. And this can be delivered precisely by some kind of a religious, poetic mythology. Which is why it's not a chance that, for example, the leader of Bosnian Serb was Karadzic, a poet. Even in Rwanda, I looked into it, uh -uh, there was a poet who was laying the foundation for, for genocide for years and so on and so on. So, uh, again, maybe poetry should also lose its innocence. Let me go on. So we have first ecological, uh, no, sorry, with Descartes, yeah, back to Descartes. We have uh, first the ecological anti-Cartesianism, then we have the Heideggerian anti-Cartesianism, Descartes as the first moment, as the founder, founding figure of modern subjectivity, which again culminates in today's nihilism and so on. Then we have New Age anti-Cartesianism, Descartes, abstract reasoning, we lose all the bullshit, you know, the holistic <laughs> relation to Earth as our mother and so on. Then we have, more interesting, cognitivist, anti-Cartesianism, uh, Damasio, for example, Damasio's Descartes' error, claiming Descartes opposes 
reasoning to emotions. No, we should speak how emotions are part of our reasoning itself. Then we have feminist anti-Cartesianism. Cogito is secretly, although not explicitly, male, which I think, incidentally, it's uh, totally not true. Empir it can be, to put it in analytic terms, empirically satisfied. Sorry, uh, rejected. In the sense that, uh, do you know that Descartes was at his time extremely popular with women? Who noted the point? Who said, it's the first time that we have cogito which has no sex. He was simply perceived as the breakthrough of this sexualized pre-modern universe, where yes, women had their place, but it was down there beneath men. Then Marxist anti-Cartesianism, Descartes' rationalism as the expression of new capitalist mentality, then existentialist, anti-rationalist, uh, anti-Cartesianism, vitalist, anti-Cartesianism, and so on and so on. With Hegel, as you can imagine, it's even worse. Hegel is the ultimate bête noir. We have the irrationalist philosophy of life, anti-Hegelianism. Hegel, the crazy absolute idealist who thought he can deduce all reality from the self-movement of the notion. What about the irrational foundation, the living force of life, totally blind to Hegelian sterility? Then Kierkegaardian existentialist, anti-Hegelianism, the uniqueness of existence that escapes Hegelian movement. Then materialist anti-Hegelianism, as Marx liked to say, Hegel termed dialectics on its head. It's not idea which self-reproduces itself. Ideas are just an effect of an expression of actual material beings, people, humanity, working, producing. Then, historicist anti-teleological relativists who claim Hegel thought we can reach absolute no. All that we can reach is a historically specified, very limited knowledge, and there is no teleology. History is an open, contingent process. Then, of course, analytic philosophers who are anti-Hegelian for obvious reasons, Marxist anti-Hegelians, liberal anti-Hegelians, whose claim is Hegel celebrated the state as the untouchable totality, uh, which incidentally today is counteracted by precisely, and this is an interesting phenomenon, the latest tendency, liberal Hegelians, Pittsburgh Hegelians, Pippin and so on, the, 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 the mark of recognition of liberal Hegelians is to focus on the topic precisely of recognition, as if the ultimate horizon of Hegel is how can we live in a society where we are all mutually recognized. And then, of course, empiricist anti-Hegelians who attack Hegel's universal logic. Hegel is elevated into some kind of a comic, ridiculous figure, that crazy guy who thought he can deduce all reality and that he can, as it were, read the mind of God. Okay. Each of these three philosophers, Plato, Descartes, Hegel, stands not only for an event, the shattering encounter of an idea, in Plato, the emergence of a purely evental cogito, a crack in the great chain of being, in Descartes, the absolute itself as evental self-deployment, as the result of its own activity. Each of the three philosophers also stands for a moment of negativity, cut. 
the normal flow of things is interrupted, another dimension breaks in. And even more importantly, each of the three philosophers stands for the moment of madness. The madness of being captivated by an idea, like falling in love, like Socrates under the spell of his demon. The madness at the heart of Cogito, and of course, the ultimate madness of the Hegelian system. What do I mean by this? Let me now try just to briefly indicate how one can read from our, today's perspective, each of these three thinkers against this standard image that we all attack as each of the three thinkers as instigators or authors of an immense breakthrough. What is so great in Plato? How is it, for example, from a platonic view, to find oneself passionately in love? Is it not a kind of permanent state of exceptions? Once you fall in love, all proper balances of your daily life are disturbed. Everything you do is colored by the underlying thought of death, of the beloved. The situation is properly beyond good and evil. You feel a weird indifference towards your moral obligations with regard to your parents, children, friends. Even if you continue to meet them, you do it in a mechanic way. <coughs> Everything pays with regard to your passionate attachment. In this sense, falling in love is like the striking that hit St. Paul on the road to Damascus, a kind of religious suspension of the ethical, to use Kierkegaard's terms. An absolute intervenes which derails the standard run of our affairs. It is not so much that the standard hierarchy of values is inverse, but more radically, another dimension enters the scene, a different level of being. And I think this is how we should read Plato today. Forget about all his ontologization of ideas, as if there is, separately from our ordinary reality, some sphere where ideas exist. This is just the way Plato himself misread his own discovery. The truth of Plato, for me, is purely evental in Alain Badiou's terms. What he describes is as Idea is a traumatic encounter. You are part of your, what but you would have called animal life. Suddenly there is an encounter. You encounter something and you get stuck onto it and your life is ruined, as it were. And again, the idea here is in a way, if we want to be true Platonists, it's not more substantial than reality. It's a pure appearance, which is why I cannot develop this now. You find it in the big, thick book in detail. Uh, which is why I claim in, in late Plato, you can see this very clearly, that idea is not some deeper reality. No, if you go deep, you find cheat. I mean, all this primordial abyss, confusion. Idea is an appearance of itself. You just see something an appearance, a specter. You are not sure does it exist or not, it doesn't matter, your life is ruined, you are stuck onto that. Let me go on. Descartes. In Descartes, this link with madness is even more direct. 
we know that in modern philosophy, cogito, cogito, the Cartesian, I think, madness and religion are closely interlinked. First, uh, the, the idea is that cogito emerges through differentiation from madness. From Descartes, you know, his mental experiment, even if I'm totally mad, even if all reality is a dream uh, 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 manipulated by an evil spirit, nonetheless, it's true that I think. That is to say, to arrive at cogito, you have to go through madness. So it's an immanent part. Uh, then, uh, even uh, historically, uh, and this idea incidentally persists. You find it in Descartes, you find it in Kant. You know, Kant's fundamental experience was Swedenborg's mysticism. Swedenborg was Kant's madman. And the whole Kant's criticism was madness is for Kant this superstitious idealism where you project ideas onto reality. It's a kind of not transcendental idealism, but the substantial direct idealism. So again, it's only through differentiation from madness that cogito emerges. And up to the end, philosophy itself, cogito, remains a point of madness. It's interesting. Again, I don't have time to go through this here, but how cogito is, for this reason, not as thinking substance. Here again, in the same way as Plato, Descartes also obfuscated, immediately mystified his own discovery, you know, when he interpreted cogito as res cogitans, a thinking substance. No, cogito is purely evental. I am only insofar as the process of thinking goes on. I am nothing as a substance. Cogito is a purely evental entity which as such Offers, open, opens up a crack in what we pathetically call the great chain of being. So, and it would be interesting to notice how this madness was then openly assumed at the summit of German idealism by Schelling, by Hegel, where they both implicitly even referring to a certain mostly German mystical tradition, see the core of subjectivity, not in bright idea, but in what they call, again, re resuscitating a mystical terms, the night of the world, the abyss, the darkness. This is, so, you know, this is important when you read Descartes, that when, when he speaks about cogito, suspending belief in the reality, what if only my what if nothing can see, blah, blah. You shouldn't read this just as a mental experiment. It's an existential position, to use this old-fashioned term. It's something that you have to go through, usually even in moment of psychotic madness or, or moment of some uh, 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 either clinical breakdown or mystical experience. Here, again, I don't have time to do it. You find it in the big, big fat book. Uh, here I go through Hegel's theory of madness. Hegel is extraordinary, more, more Foucauldian than Michel Foucault himself, when he develops at the beginning of his philosophy of spirit, part three of Encyclopedia, 
how you cannot pass directly from animal to human sphere. That in between is a moment of madness, at least a threat of madness. Nature derailed. And then what we call human symbolic universe of thinking and so on is constitutively, transcendentally, an attempt, an attempt to control this excess of madness. So as Hegel said, as clear as Foucault, he said, this doesn't mean we should all be mad, but that the only way to understand our normal, so-called normal mode of being, of us humans, is in order to understand it, we have to refer to madness. It's a kind of a defense formation against madness in the very core of our being. Of course, again, I don't want to talk too long. It's a very big ethical endeavor to me. So let me move here fast into how, from a proper Hegelian standpoint, it's not enough to say how we have this excessive point of madness, mystical night of the world, and then reason comes and intervenes and controls it, gentrifies it, whatever. Note that the supreme madness is precisely reason itself, this attempt to control the excess of it. And again, many people would have agreed, claiming that this is precisely Hegel's madness. Many people would have accepted moment A, yeah, maybe, why not? We all have to go through madness, but then the whole point is to achieve some kind of normality. Why? Hegelian, Hegel is in his excessive normality, if by normality we mean overcoming our madness with a rational system, that Hegel, as it were, replaces psychotic madness, this breakdown mystical abyss, with an even higher madness of a total system of thinking and so on and so on. There are some moments of truth in this. Namely, but I think I would like to defend Hegel here. You know, let me take Hegel at its most crazy and apparently the most insensitive to human suffering. Uh, his idea of how can we understand an epoch of history? What remains of history? Here is what Hegel writes in his philosophy of history about Thucydides, Thucydides, history of the Peloponnesian War. I quote from Hegel. In the Peloponnesian War, the struggle was essentially between Athens and Sparta. Thucydides has left us the history of the greater part of it. And his immortal work is the absolute gain which humanity has derived from the content. End of quote. Are you aware what Hegel is saying here? One should read this judgment in all its naivety. In a way, Hegel is saying that from the standpoint of the world history, retroactive constructing a narrative, the Peloponnesian War took place so that Thucydides could write a book on it. Uh, the term absolute should be given all its weight here. From the relative point of our finite human interests, Numerous real tragedies of the Peloponnesian War, suffering, devastation, are of course infinitely more important than a stupid book written afterwards. But uh, nonetheless, once it's over, 
so-called living history. Are we not all close to Hegel's position? Let me take another example, which will maybe not be so problematic for you. Wouldn't you find relatively acceptable, I certainly would, to say that what is, to quote Hegel, the, uh, that the, uh, uh, sorry, the, the, the absolute gain which humanity has derived from Elizabethan England are Shakespeare's place, I claim. Let's be frank, that's what remained. Today, it's not Shakespeare, the small guy who had to kiss the ass of Queen Elizabeth to be able to perform. Today, Queen Elizabeth was the queen who had the luck to know about Shakespeare. And I'm even, I, I think we shouldn't be afraid of this crazy reasoning. Like, a week ago, I was in San Francisco, and of course, I'm an opportunist to flatter them and so on. I told them the spiritual game of you, the shitty city of San Francisco, is that Hitchcock shot vertigo there. <laughs> <laughs> to build this city, and you know, it may sound crazy, but that's how meaning is produced in history. And what Hegel offers, now I go a step further, what Hegel offers here is a, a non-teleological reading of this. It's not that when history takes place, it's already in a secret way motivated or by this goal. No, this goal is, spiritual goal is totally contingent and it renders history readable retroactively. With retroactivity, we are now back at something which was, I think, the unique achievement of Hegel. Hegel was the first to reintroduce temporality into a process of truth. What do I mean by this temporality? Let me give you a surprising example. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, her famous attack on social democratic revisionism, uh, directed against Eduard Bernstein, the big figure of German revisionism from around 1900. In her polemics, Rosa Luxemburg provides a series of arguments against the revisionist fear that proletariat will take power prematurely before the consequences are right. You know, this is the fear of revisionists. Okay, you want rebellion, but objective conditions are not yet mature. Be patient, we have to wait. Here is Rosa Luxemburg's answer. Since the proletariat is not in the position to seize power in other way than prematurely, since the proletariat is absolutely obliged to seize power once or several times too early before it can maintain itself in power for good. The objection to the premature conquest of power is at bottom nothing more than a general opposition to the aspiration of the proletariat to possess itself of state power. So what does this mean? Something very precise and paradoxical. It means what Jacques Lacan called there is no meta-language. That is to say, of course, the moment is immature. You got it, but if you wait for the right moment, it will never arrive. Why? Because the right moment only arrives when, the, to put it very simply, when the agent to do the revolution is mature enough. But the only way, as it were, to form yourself, educate, is, is through premature attempts. In other words, let's look at it from a purely temporal, logical way. There is a right moment 
But you cannot say let's be, but the right moment only emerges through the series of premature seizures of power. Like you cannot wait for it. It's only through illusion, through the mistake, that the authentic true moment uh, the, the, the authentic true moment emerges. Now it will be the only case where I will repeat an old joke from my first book because it gives you the structure in its clearest form. I, you don't have to laugh, I know you know it. It's the joke from Yugoslav Army, my favorite trauma, about a conscript who pleaded, uh, he wanted, pleaded insanity to avoid serving the army, no? I tried the same and it may amuse you how I failed. We all tried it. I over, or uh, to paraphrase the wonderful slip of tongue of your ex-president, I, I uh, mis-overestimated, <laughs> misunderstood the, the me, 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 doctors, army doctors. I thought, my idea was this one, that I thought, look at me now, I mean, literally, like, with all my teeth crazy, I thought that if I exaggerate this, then the best strategy would be to argue that I want to go to the army. But to do it in such a crazy way, excessive, that I would say, look, the way this guy argues to the army clearly makes him an idiot. And, but unfortunately, it didn't work. He said, you want to go to the army? Okay, go. It will probably help you. I was desperate, you know. Okay, but what I'm saying is that in this other joke, uh, uh, it's purely joke, it couldn't have happened. The joke is that there was a guy who, again, played insanity, and his symptom was that wherever he found himself, he looked for papers, looked at each paper, and said, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. Okay, he found himself in front of the committee, medical committee, looked at all the papers, even in the trash bin, on the table, that's not it, that's not it. Of course, they decided this guy is clearly a lunatic, and they wrote, uh, they wrote uh, the, how do you call it, the opinion that he should be released of army service. He looked at it and said, that's it. <laughs> okay, so, but you see, at its most elementary, the logic. That's it, you have to go through, that's not it to... <coughs> Why, okay, now, again, you have this explained much more in detail in the Big Fat book. I just want to draw attention to one thing here. How, for Hegel, and we can here link Hegel to psychoanalytic notion of fantasy, to, uh, to Marxian commodity fetishism, and so on. The crucial point here is, and again, you find this much more detailed in the book, is this uh, temporality of truth. Hegel does not confuse truth and fiction. He's not a postmodern relativist. The only thing he insists is that you arrive at truth only through fiction, which is why, where do you have temporality? For example, it crushes here Hegel's judgment on French Revolution, which is usually mis misread as some kind of conservative corporatist rejection, like revolutionaries wanted this abstract equality, all people are immediately equal, and of course it was terror, murderous fury, but we have the state of reason, organized corporate society, that's okay, and so on. Plus fury, but we have the state of reason, organized corporate society, that's okay, and so on. But Hegel is not saying this. Hegel is saying something much more interesting, that 
The first choice is between Ancien Regime and Jacobin Terror. Jacobin Terror is a mistake in the formal sense. It necessarily ends in terror and so on. But it's only once you to make the wrong choice, terror, that the true choice opens up. You cannot say, no, no, we will jump through Jacobin terror, let's build directly the new organic proto-fascist order, whatever is usually attributed to Hegel. Uh, it's, you know that even the choice, the logical choice, has a temporary dimension. Choice is always redoubled. First choice is wrong choice. Once you are in the wrong choice, you get the real choice to arrive at truth. Which means, again, what? Again, it's much more in detail explained in the book, but the point is this one. When we have this trial of subjective, objective, absolute knowing, we should be precise, Hegel speaks about this knowing, not knowledge. But uh, Hegel, what is this absolute knowledge? It can be defined in a very simple way. The opposition of subjective and objective knowing, let's call it simply doxa and episteme, is a simple one. The way we just imagine things to be and the way things objectively really are. Now comes Hegel's crucial point. You get from objective to absolute, not by reaching some even deeper reality, but by including subjective into objective. What you add to objective to get to the absolute is illusion itself. Absolute means objective order plus the insight into how illusions are constitutive of it. What does this mean? This means, to jump a little bit quickly, that if we are to experience reality as consistent, reality has to be supplemented with virtual fictions, or as Gilbert Keith Chesterton, my favorite Catholic theologist, wonderfully put it, literature and fiction are two entirely different things. Literature is a luxury, fiction is a necessity. That is to say, as another well-known British Hegelian called Jeremiah Bentham, as Lacan knew it, knew very well, it's easy to distinguish reality and fictions. The problem is that when you, when you erase fictions, you lose reality itself. What does this mean? Now a precise Hegelian claim, I think, about uh, fantasy. I remember years ago in a German daily newspaper, some more than 20 years ago even, they wanted to make fun of dirty male sexual fantasies. So they publish photos of five men dreaming, no, asking, they are all asked the same question. What would you like to do this summer? And you have beneath the image their official answers. For example, one of, one of them is saying, oh, I would like to read in peace a good book. Another one, to visit a faraway country. Another one, to rest on a sunny beach or whatever. But then each image is accompanied by this, like in uh, comics cloud, which allegedly shows what they were really thinking about. Yeah, 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 of course, in each of them is a naked woman, you know, so I think this is strictly theoretically wrong. The whole point of psychoanalysis is that if anything is the exact truth which is 
with quotes. That is to say, if they were to be honest male chauvinists, which some of us are, they would of course immediately say, oh, I want to have three points like crazy and so on all the time. <laughs> but the true question, as you know, of psychoanalytic fantasy is not, ah, do you always think about that sex, but what do you think when you do make love, no? And here, I think that the truth would be this one. They say, I want to screw my lover's brain out, whatever. But then how? One of them would be, I want to do it on a sunny beach. The other one, on a, on a, in a faraway country. The third one, why not? It's a nice dream. I had it once. The reading a book. The lady should read a book at Ergo, and you do it from behind so that you know the unity of intellectual and sensual life, whatever. You see my point then. Uh, you cannot just do sex. You must have, you must have uh, uh, fantasy with it. What does this, you know what? I wanted to develop here something which I will skip over about the link of psychoanalysis and Hegel, just to give you a brief res resume. You also find this in the Big Fat book. Uh, my idea was to oppose the standard philosophically very well elaborated in Frankfurt School tradition, the young Habermas uh, knowledge and human interest, and later Helmut Dahmer, a very good book, not translated into English, Libido and Society, parallel between psychoanalysis and Hegelian dialectics. To put it very simply, the idea is that Freud was the great post-Hegelian Hegelian, that De facto, if you look at psychoanalytic process, Freud transposed Hegelian dialectic into it, in the sense that symptoms are signs of the subject's self-alienation, something that is really part of you. You don't recognize yourself in it. It appears to you as some foreign, irrational agency, as it were, bombarding you, and that the work of psychoanalysis consists precisely in the reconciliation between your subjectivity and your alienated substantial content at the unconscious in which you are not able to recognize yourself. So that at the end of the psychoanalytic treatment, you recognize yourself in your symptoms. In the same way that Hegel says allegedly that in reconciliation the subject reappropriates the intellectual substance, the Freudian goal, that's how they read this famous Wo es war soll ich werden, where it was I should arrive, I should reappropriate the alienated substance. What I wanted to do but don't have time to do now is to show how one should reject this parallel, but not in the usual way, which is unfortunately still mostly Lacan's way, which is to say, no, Freud was really not a Hegelian. This only holds for Hegel. I claim that if this is Hegel, then Hegel was also not a Hegelian. That what Hegel calls reconciliation, overcoming of alienation, is not this kind of subjective reappropriation of reality, but something much more different. It's even like, okay, 
I want to uh, uh, arouse your interest a little bit in the big fat book, so I will just tell you to maybe arouse your interest. Uh, which book I analyze, okay, I wouldn't say in detail, five, six pages, which is a lot for me, you know that I'm a madman jumping from one book to the other, uh, to give you an idea of what is Hegelian reconciliation. Can some of you help me? Primitive barbarian coming from Balkan, you know, I don't know. Who is the, I'll ask you like this, who is the South African author, uh, internationally known, and not Nadine Gordimer? Ah, ah, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm not, never sure how to pronounce the name without appearing an idiot. Okay, did you read his uh, disgrace? That's reconciliation at its purest. This total despair where the guy accepts, and did you see the movie, which is not so bad, incidentally, by John Malkovich plays the hero. It's something like that that I claim Hegel has in mind with reconciliation. It's not this arrogance of, I eat the whole world, you know. It's not an extremely resigned recognition how you should recognize yourself in the very shit that it's screwing you, or however I should put it, no? Okay, but read the book. Now I want to do something for which we are here, a little bit more radical. I want to point this, that the structure that I describe of reality supplementing, uh, being supplemented by fantasy, uh, involves what Lacan calls object small a, this pure void or even that's the title of my book, incidentally, this less than nothing. Something which is paradoxically less than nothing. And in a chapter which is maybe a little bit crazy, but I like it, it's my favorite chapter in the book, the last one, I try in a very risky move, I admit it, to develop some kind of formal homology between this Lacanian object A as less than nothing and what in quantum physics is called uh, uh, Higgs field, you know. You know this paradox, if I understood it correctly, okay, I did, I'm an idiot, but I think I got one idea clearly that the basic paradox, and for me it's mind-boggling, it's incredible, of Higgs field is that you know that you have a something which costs less than nothing. To have a certain field at its zero level, completely void, costs more energy than to have it with something, and that something is Higgs field, which is literally something which costs less than nothing. I want to give you here a wonderful metaphor, the second time that I repeat my own old stuff, but it's a beautiful example, because I'm here pro-American. I prefer your Hershey bar to that European Zuckerberg bullshit or whatever. <laughs> Stephen Jay Gould, in one of his early books, you know, has a wonderful illustration of the logic of uh, evolution with the relationship between price and quantity of a Hershey bar. He describes the tendency, which is, let's say, at a certain moment, the Hershey bar costs so much, let's say 10 cents, and has a certain quantity. You get a certain... Then he says, for some time, the company tries to maintain the same price, but uh, the chocolate bar gets a little bit smaller. Well, then, when it gets too absurd, the price goes up and the quantity goes up. But the quantity 
does not reach the quantity at the beginning. It's like if it was at the beginning here, it goes down with the same price, then the price goes up, but here, no? And it goes on like this. And now, you can guess where he is aiming. It's that you can, in this way, although it cannot empirically arrive, construct a final point where the quant not only will the quantity be nothing, but you can exactly calculate how much this nothing will cost <laughs> if you go with the price. Now, this, this is as good as you can get, I claim, to Lacanian object small a. It's a nothing which nonetheless has some properties, has a cost, and so on and so on. Can Hegel think this? So, in a very naive way, I do it much more uh, in detail in the big fat book, let me now approach this problem. Here, I rely here to a deep conversations with my good friend Mladen Dolar. Here is an improvised list of what Hegel cannot think, or so it appears. A series of concepts mostly elaborated by psychoanalysis and Marxism. It looks that Hegel cannot think repetition, unconscious, over-determination, object A, letter, in the sense of matem, formal sciences, antagonism, class struggle, sexual difference. It's more ambiguous with Hegel, but nonetheless, a case can be made. First, repetition. Let me be clear here. Of course, Hegel can think repetition. He even has, as we all know, a beautiful theory of repetition. Repetition is the movement of idealization. The first time it's contingency, just raw empirical stuff, through repetition, contingency is idealized into conceptual necessity. You must know Hegel's two great examples, uh, Julius Caesar and Napoleon. Julius Caesar works especially well because you have literally a passage from contingent name to concept. Caesar had to die to repeat himself to emerge as Caesar the title, the universal title. Through this repetition, it became clear that you cannot get rid of Caesar, that he wasn't just a historical continuous. Even if the plot succeeded, Caesar returned as a title, no longer a personal name, that guy Caesar, but as a title. Hegel makes a similar remark about Napoleon, that this is why Napoleon had to lose twice, 1913, sorry, 1813 and 15. He had to lose twice to, as it were, uh, to make his point. Okay, what Hegel here obviously cannot think is repetition in, okay, it's tautological, in post-Hegelian sense. By this, I mean two authors which are very strange bedfellows, uh, Kierkegaard and uh, Freud. Kierkegaard, repetition, and Freudian compulsion to repeat. Where is the difference? That precisely in these two cases, we do have repetition, but without Aufhebung, sublation, or idealization. It's just a blind repetition. Uh, second thing. Hegel has probably been thinking unconscious. Again, he can think it, but it is, as Lacan makes it clear in one of his late seminars, it is a formal transcendental unconscious. Hegelian unconscious is the unconscious of transcendental for universal form. 
The idea is that, for example, when we speak, we are fascinated by concrete content, we forget the universal form. And Kegel is very nice here, I mean, uh, in the sense of goes very far when he emphasizes again and again how, uh, how when there is a split between what we say and what we mean to say, the truth is always on the side of what we say. Hegel never plays what we, what we say against some deeper meaning. If there is a gap, the truth is on surface. But for Hegel, the unconscious is this universal conceptual transcendental structure. What Hegel cannot think is the contingency of the particular Freudian unconscious, which would have been precisely something like the structure of over-determination. Think about Freud's famous, we all know it, example of Signorelli. You know, Freud can't recall the name Signorelli of the painter of, from Orvieto, and he substitutes two other painters, Botticelli Boltraffio. And then, uh, Freud, in the analysis, establishes a whole network of signifying associations. The Italian village Trafoi, where Freud received the message of the suicide of one of his patients. Herr, the German word for Mr. Signor, is linked to a trip to Herzegovina, part of Bosnia, where an old Muslim told Freud that after you cannot make love, after you are too old for sex, there is no reason to go on living, and so on, and so on. So here we have a kind of a totally contingent dispersal without any great dominant negation or whatever. It's just a rhizomatic confusion. Uh, <coughs> then, okay, I will not go on too much. Uh, the problem of jouissance. Uh, as in excess of truth, irreducible to truth, and so on and so on. The problem of mathematics. It's clear that Hegel reduced mathematics to what he calls understanding, the first time, abstract reasoning, which is unable to confront what Hegel calls wahre unendlichkeit, the true infinity. As always with Hegel, that's why he is a genius, of course, things are more ambiguous. For example, if you don't believe me, it's really the symptomatic point of Hegel's logic. Look into the last chapter of the first part of Hegel's logic, logic of being, uh, no, sorry, it's the, even the, the second part on quantity. Towards the end, Hegel deals with infinitesimal calculus. And it's mad, it's like, 50, 60 pages, it sticks out. It's like a tiny development lo longer than the entire, because obviously there, mathematics does something precisely processing to true infinity, which is for Hegel, when you no longer have elements who relate, but you know, in infinitesimal calculus, relation as such is abstracted and becomes in itself the topic. This officially, for official Hegelian philosophy, this shouldn't have happened. This shouldn't have happened in mathematics. So yes, we should also say that unfortunately for Hegel, the post-Hegelian science formalized and so on, uh, there is no place for it in Hegel. Now, where things get really interesting 
is how Hegel often, again, in a chapter on Hegel and Marx, of course, defending Hegel against Marx, Marxist uh, calumnies and so on. Nonetheless, I make it clear how the, the situation is most tragic in all those places where Hegel, when he doesn't see something, it's not some trans-Hegelian dimension, it's the Hegelian dimension itself. For example, when Hegel describes in his philosophy of right a uh, modern economy, and here we get the greatness of Marx. What Hegel didn't yet see is how the structure of capital's universe is really totally Hegelian. This is what Marx saw. But Hegel describes in much more naive way. Okay, we can say because of objective social circumstances, whatever. But you know, Hegel didn't see the Hegelian dimension itself there. So. Uh, now, this brings me now to the next, just a couple of concluding remarks. First, so the post-Hegelian break has two aspects. First, we have this, I think, less important, also predominant, idea that Hegel is the deadlock of absolute idealism and that the insight of all great post-Hegelian figures, Leib Schelling, Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer, Marx, is that the self-movement of idea is just a theater of shadows, specters, ideas that we need a kind of a positive foundation of being for Marx, so that what enters here is the entire logic of representation, in the sense that the sphere of ideas is perceived as a shadow theater, and we have to find its true productive foundation. Like for Marx, you know, ideology, a shadow, real productive life of individuals is where things really happen. For Schopenhauer, similar, the will, the irrational will. For Kierkegaard, the uniqueness of individual and his uh, belief. But I think there is another aspect which I already mentioned, which is more important, repetition, blind mechanic repetition, repetition which cannot be, cannot be economized in the sense of producing a higher order, in the sense of the movement of idealization. In this sense, paradoxically, although Hegel is a thinker of negativity, in a way, what he was not able to see is precisely the, uh, uh, how put it, uh, the positive foundation of negativity. What do I mean by this? Let me make a brief exercise which may surprise you into Heidegger and Freud. I know Heidegger's very low opinion of Freud. But uh, in his, uh, reading of Anaximander in Holzweger. Heidegger gives, Heidegger has a very interesting passage where he tries to locate almost in an ahistorical way the origins of metaphysics. Metaphysics being conceived as the forgetting of being and positive entities, uh, again, obliterating the dimension proper of being. And he locates the origin of 
metaphysics into our fixation on a certain entity. The idea is this one. Things are running normally, you know, all this bullshit of like the Lion King bullshit, big cycle of life. Uh, 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 lions eat zebras, but lions turn to sheep, feed the grass, and uh, uh, grass is eaten by zebras. Zebra. Uh, this idea of a normal flow of things, and then, here I quote Heidegger, that which lingers, persists, the heart in its presencing. In this way, it extricates itself from its transitory why. Why is here a substantive like the harm? Uh, it stiffens as if this were the only way to linger and aims solely for continuance and subsistence and so on. So it's as if the origin of evil, if I put it pathetically, is this kind of excessive attachment which makes you fixated on some particular entity and it's now my point here is that the link between this and falling in love the way I described it is purely intentional. That, that uh, here I am on the side of Plato against Heidegger, if you want. I claim that what Hegel didn't see is that uh, uh, the origin of negativity in this profound Hegelian way is its opposite, is excessive positivity. How do I become destructive? So that instead of maintaining this good Jedi, this is why I am in Star Wars, always on the side of Anakin Skywalker. My dream is to remake Star Wars, celebrating Emperor and Darth Vader as good democratic centralist squashing dirty feudalist old rebellions and so on and so on, like new Jacobins or whatever. No? But okay, let me go on. Uh, you know all that bullshit that uh, Anakin is uh, fed upon by your, my God, don't mention me Yoda. Yoda, I imagine myself in boots squashing that person. No, okay, what I'm, seriously, what I'm saying is that this, for me, is, as it were, the origin of metaphysics. Precisely what, in this pseudo-Buddhist universe, they describe as getting too attached, getting too much attached onto. But this is human greatness. Animals just, uh-uh, everything floats. I eat you, I eat tomorrow, that. Metaphysics begins when you are over-fixated onto something and you say, that something matters more than everything everything else, and so on and so on. So, it, paradoxically, the origin of negativity is precisely uh, uh, over-affirmation of a limited positivity, precisely as, you know, I fall in love, everything else does not matter. This is why, again, I agree here with my friend here, not elsewhere, you will find I know that in a couple of weeks I will get an angry letter from Alain Badiou. How could I write this and so on? <laughs> Attacking him. But uh, uh, here I agree with him when he praises love precisely as the fall, falling in love. Namely, but you noticed something very nicely in his book, which is a bestseller in France. Maybe it will be here. I don't know if it already appeared. Eloge de l'Amour in Praise of Love, where he found something wonderful example of everyday ideology. A publicity for 
one of these uh, uh, dating or marriage agencies, where they say very briefly, concisely, we will enable you to be in love without the fall. Playing on this expression, which you have also in French, tomber, to fall in love. What does it mean? That simply they will choose the partner, it will not disturb your life, everything will function. There will not be this magic, metaphysical moment of, oh my God, it's the encounter of the thing itself, and so on and so on. But the paradox is that instead of opposing metaphysics and fall, as even Heidegger is still doing, usually it's it, you fall into ontic reality, metaphysics is the fall. What do I mean by this now? Really to conclude, uh, did you ask yourself, here Lacan is writing seminar 11, why is especially the Catholic Church so opposed to sexuality? I mean, how stupid is their argumentation? And when I say stupid, I'm not bluffing. I'm not saying all theologists are stupid. They are the top. Lacan is right to say that. The only real materialists maybe today are theologists. But nonetheless, what strikes me as stupid is that when they claim, this is, this is the official doxa of the Catholic Church, when they claim that if copulation, making love, is done only for pleasure, it's animal. Why? If you do it for procreation, it's properly human. Well, I never got it. And I asked many priests, bishops in Vienna, I never got a good answer to this simple question. But isn't it exactly the opposite, sorry? It's the animals who do it for procreation, which is why they do it only in these uh, annual rhythms. You know, it's the season for mating, we do it. What humans, this is difference between animal sexuality is part of the normal flow of life. Human sexuality is properly metaphysical. Something, something happens, a traumatic encounter, which is literally metaphysical. It interrupts your immersion into normal reality, and so on. And uh, so here Lacan has some wonderful precise passages in Seminary 11. Uh, he refers to apparition, I think appearance, I think it uh, should refer also to reality, where, again, Lacan says that about Plato, he says that uh, Plato opposes Mimesis appearance so much, not because it's opposed to true idea, but because it's its greatest competitor. And I think the same goes for Catholicism. It opposes sexuality because it's well aware that sexuality precisely is not animal, but it's, as it were, the elementary form of, not in idealist sense, metaphysics, in the sense of the normal cycle of life, animal flow being interrupted, cut by the brutal entry of another metaphysical dimension of death drive, love, passion, and so on and so on. So I think uh, rereading Hegel in this way, we don't have time to do it now, uh, it would have been wonderful, that's again what I tried to do in the Big Fat book, to, uh, to show how at many crucial moments of Hegelian system, he does confront this excessive dimension of death drive as pure repetition, which cannot be sublated of Kebung into higher ideality, but cannot fully accept the innermost result of his own thought. Well, 
sexuality, this is Hegel at his worst. He doesn't do it there, but he does it, for example, apropos madness, where he clearly claims that madness is not just a point of passage, like there is a track of madness, then we sublate it, idealize it. He says explicitly, the track of madness remains here all the time and explodes from time to time. Then, another point would have been, for example, we don't have time to go into his political philosophy, the notion of rebel, purple, the outcasts. He again says, it's not something we can get rid of, it's the eternal threat to social edifice. And finally, my favorite example, but I will try to read it in a positive way, where Hegel is usually attacked against Immanuel Kant, Kant's idea of eternal peace, Hegel insists on the conceptual necessity of war. And his foundation is purely metaphysical, not empirical. His idea is that insofar as we live in peace, we are part of a certain organic order and we lose our sense of mission. We become simply involved in our small daily affairs and so on and so on. That the function of the war is to remind us of the negativity, the radical dimension of our subjectivity and so on and so on. Now you will say, oh, oh this is bullshit, this is a mystified uh, reassertion of, uh, of uh, militarism. No, I think that again, to get at what Hegel is aiming here, we just have to push him a little bit further and read Hegel maybe with Thomas Jefferson. You know, when Jefferson wrote, I quote him that, uh, a little rebellion now and then is a good thing. It is a medicine necessary for the sound health of government. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, and so on and so on. What Hegel didn't do is just to push things further and replace war, external negation, with inner revolution, and so on and so on. And so, again, uh, we could have gone on here indefinitely. The time is to end. What I want to emphasize at the end is that in all this topic, the point is not simply to go beyond Hegel, but maybe precisely to repeat Hegel. To be Hegelian today, I claim, means to not simply to go over Hegel, but to think Hegel, to read Hegel as an incomplete project, and to be more Hegelian than Hegel himself. This is what I claim our unique constellation today, which is, of course, the end, as but you put it openly, also the end of a certain historical epoch of the left, this standard Marxist left, which believed in its own teleology of history and so on and so on. I think that our situation is pretty close to the situation of Hegel today. Hegel was also a thinker of a moment of passage. An old world was dying, a new world was emerging. It wasn't yet clear what this new world will be. And you must know, my God, this wonderful uh, uh, proposition by Antonio Gramsci when he says, when the old is dying, but the new is not yet born, it's a time when monsters emerge, and so on and so on. So uh, I claim that 
Hegel is par excellence the thinker of this transition. It's only at such moments when you can really see things. Because once the new order is installed, it's then this transition becomes what I following Fred Jensen called the vanishing mediator. Like it's no longer visible. It's in moments of tradition, sorry, transition that you can see it. And it's incredible to what extent, also you find this aha in my big fat book, <laughs> Hegel, even when he appears to be at his most conservative, how much he saw. For example, here I get the definitive 20 pages analysis of his uh, deduction of the necessity of monarchy. I think, I'm not kidding, it's his most democratic moment. Why? Because his reasoning is not eternal right of the king, no, no. What he clearly saw is the, let's call it in modern terms, the totalitarian danger of basing, founding, grounding the right of those who rule to their rule in their properties, abilities, and so on and so on. There has to be contingency. For Hegel, for historical reasons here, we have to think further, of course. What is crucial about king is that he, a king is that he is a nobody. It's totally contingent who will be the king. And Hegel sense very well that if you have the rule which is legitimized by positive properties of those who rule, you end up with some kind of a Stalinist leader who really claims Stalin knew everything and so on and so on. He Hegel basically knew something that even old ancient Democrats knew, ancient Greeks and so on, that there has to be uh, an aspect of lottery contingency in selecting those who will rule us. And today especially, this is very actual, my God, you know what is happening today in Europe? As the result of this crisis, again, the idea of even directly non-democratically legitimized expert rule is reasserting itself. So again, back to my point, what I'm saying is that Hegel as a thinker of tradition should be repeated today when it is clear that we are in a mega epoch of tradition. A certain epoch, at least, of capitalism is coming to an end. We don't know with what to replace it. We have a whole series of problems, from ecology to biogenetics, which will probably redefine our very notion of what is a human, what means to be a human being, and so on and so on. And in here, again, the repetition of what Hegel did is necessary. And this is why I speak to Jacques Lacan. He is, for me, ultimately an instrument to repeat Hegel. He would have denied it, of course, I'm well aware of it, no. And in this sense, I think, one should, from this perspective of repeating Hegel, one should do many wonderful things. For example, I, with this to really finish, I would like again to mention the very last chapter of the book where I try to do this totally crazy thing of rereading quantum physics. You know what's happening today? The so-called ontological question, how do we read ontological consequences of quantum physics? This was for a long time ignored. It doesn't matter just that mathematics works. Then there 
is a series of attempts, many world interpretation, David Bohm, many others, which I claim are precisely attempts to reinscribe quantum physics into our ordinary notion of reality. We are still not at the level of Niels Bohr's paradox. And the task is today to, again, uh, yeah, I'm very modest here, but from my limited knowledge, I tend to agree, I hope I'm wrong, but unfortunately I tend to agree with those who claim that string theory is not the solution. You know, it looked that this will be the next step. So, again, uh, uh, the task is, and I think Hegel can really be of help here, not literally Hegel, but uh, although in Hegel you find miracles, let me conclude with a wonderful joke, which was total contingency. I know I'm not a superstitious idiot, but je sais bien, mais quand même, I was surprised. You know that uh, the way usually to make fun of Hegel is to quote as his greatest stupidity how in his, the early version of his philosophy of nature he deduces why there is a conceptual necessity that there are eight planets around the sun. He simply didn't know that the ninth one, which is Pluto or Neptune, I never know, is already discovered. So idiot, he deduced the necessity of eight. Can you imagine my totally irrational, like intellectually orgasmic pleasure when I read two, three years ago news, uh, Pluto which one is not really a planet there are eight. Of course, how could Kegel be wrong? Thank you very much. Raise your hand. Okay, you raise your hand, now you put down your hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have to pretend we are. Okay, sorry, please. Uh, please. Uh, but uh, first, I would say that uh, if there are also strategies to, to hit us in uh, the beliefs which we follow, even if we don't believe them, this does not mean we can't do anything. We can also attack those beliefs, and uh, but one of the ways would have been precisely what you suggested at the end. I'm not saying this is the exclusive strategy, but don't laugh now, please. Don't throw me out. But this is, for example, what I like, the greatest American writer of 20th century, who was Ayn Rand. Why is she an embarrassment? Don't be afraid. She's ridiculous. I know. But why is she an embarrassment? Because precisely beliefs which should remain implicit, non-believed, non in an embarrassing way, she, as it were, brings them out. You know, she is an example of what I call over-identification. In the same sense that Pascal, Jean Zenis were an example for Catholicism of that time, they had to be excommunicated in the same way that Heinrich von Kleist was an embarrassment for 
German militarism, not by subverting it, but precisely by over-identifying with it. In this sense, I claim, yes, yes, why? Because, again, because of the necessary inconsistency of an ideology with itself, as it were. You know, this uh, ideology is necessarily incon in inconsistent, which is why sometimes much more subversive than undermining is, as you said, than to take it more literally than it takes itself. Now, the problem here is, but I have maybe a way out, because I tried already to develop the idea that you mentioned, and I was usually attacked in this way. But wait a minute. We do have people today who really believe. They are called fundamentalists. They want us to support them. My answer is no, they don't believe. It's a very crazy answer. The first reason, I think, they don't believe because they know. I would here insist on the difference between belief and knowing. A fundamentalist, which is why if you look at science, true fundamentalists, Christian, have no problem with science. For them, for example, for an authentic Christian, if a thing like this exists, I doubt. The fact that Christ has risen is a mysterious mystery. For radical fundamentalists, it's a fact of life, which is why, let me give you an example. You know that I like this shitty, mysterious, uh, 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 Dan Brown type of... You know uh, that during Trump of crime, allegedly the piece of cloth bearing the... the okay. Uh, I spoke with a priest in Milano, where they have it, and he told me something very beautiful privately. He told me his greatest fear is that there, would be mo there will be more signs that this shroud is authentic. He wants it false. Because he told me the obvious fear. You know what he was afraid of? Okay, if science will prove that it's authentic, and we have there, remember, we have bloods of stain, allegedly, of Jesus Christ. Sorry, but then, uh, then uh, the question of the Holy Father becomes an empirical question. We analyze the DNA of the Christ, and we will probably learn what most of the people uh, uh, suspect to be brutal that Virgin Mary was having a nice affair with some Egyptian slave and so on, and then become pregnant and was selling the bullshit to her husband. I mean, an empirical question. They are afraid. Why? I spoke uh, with some fundamentalists. When they told me, we are not afraid, we will know what will be the solution. God doesn't have a DNA, so will be Virgin Mary's DNA redoubled, and so on. But the horror is that for them, it became simply an empirical question. They are the true crazy radical scientists, of course, in a pseudo sense. But this is why, did you notice this, how all the most crazy fundamentalists like to talk science. They simply think that... There is no gap there. What the Bible says is absolutely true, so of course it should be confirmed uh, by science and so on and so on. So I claim in a slightly different way, I know you didn't mean this, you meant to say to take the existing ideological premises explicitly more seriously and so on, but it is in this sense I claim that maybe only an atheist can really believe. Believe is 
believing in the abstract. Belief is always in the sense of, I know it's not true, but nonetheless, I believe in it. It's a crazy premise, like when you say, I believe in the equality of men. My God, I know very well that in some stupid sense they are not equal. But it's kind of a crazy existential wager. Even if it's not true, act as if this norm has value and so on and so on and so on. So where I agree with you is that this is the problem. You mentioned it very nicely. That uh, the problem is that of uh, is there a limit to enlightenment or not? The true tragic figure here is for me Habermas. Why? Because on the one hand, he wants to present himself as bringing uh, enlightenment to the end. You know, modernity as an unfinished project, so let's finish it and so on. But I found it so tragic how, maybe you know this better than me even, when challenged with the biogenetic prospect, he joined hands with Ratzinger. He co-published a book, not co-written, they just put text together with Ratzinger, just before he became a pope, Ratzinger, because basically Habermas adopted this conservative Catholic stance, knowing too much, especially practicing too much, on biogenetics poses a threat to the established notions of human dignity and so on. So it's better not to do it. Basically, the way I read him, he nonetheless accepts this basic conservative Catholic premise. Some things are better not to be known if... And I think we should take the challenge here to the end. I, I, don't, I don't buy this. I don't buy this. So again, uh, the problem is, yes, how can we be people of enlightenment to the end? But I... My program would still be that. I'm not an irrational sphere. I would say today more than ever, especially when we have all this bullshit about post-secular uh, or, or whatever, we should, we should be rationalists to the end. But okay, don't have time now. Now you decide. Now, now you are measured between left and right. What do you do? <laughs> thank you. I left behind the gift I brought for you okay. in Montreal. It says, it's a t-shirt. It says, your sister is hot, but your mama does that thing with her tongue. Uh, I left, does that thing with her tongue. Uh, <laughs> you know, not your tongue. Moment with big breast had a t-shirt and here with big letters I want to be fucked. Wait a minute, now comes a beautiful area. Then of course I looked closely in smaller letters, but not by you jerk, you know. <laughs> this is as good as Hegelian as you can get. <laughs> Here's my question. It's about the event. Um, it's about your relationship with your enemy friend Alaban. You um, how, how do you understand his reading of the event? And the second part of the question is, you said each philosopher stands for an event. Of these three. Yeah, those three. You said each philosopher stands for an event. What event does Zizek stand for? I'm more... So the two parts. <laughs> how do you understand Badiou's notion of the event? 
in the light of what you said today, and what event do you stand for? First, uh, you know, immodest as I may have been, this would nonetheless have been a little bit too much for me. This is too much of a meta-language, no? I mean, uh, this total arrogance of saying, I, I find it absolutely obscene even to, even to contemplate the idea of, as it were, looking at me objectively, you know, and saying I belong here and so on, this is what I gave to. Situation is, I don't know, it will be decided retroactively. Maybe I will be nobody, maybe I will be a small somebody of passage and so on. I, I'm really here a Hegelian, you know. Hegel is here, that's the, one of the theses of the Big Fat book. Did you notice it? Subliminally, I want to implant the man. <laughs> <laughs> Namely that Hegel was much more materialist than Marx. Marx still believed that you, as a historical agent, can arrive at the knowledge of historical process, where it leads into the future, and then act as an agent realizing this tendency or even just possibility. Hegel prohibits this. Why? Not because, oh, there is a big other, the, the ways of God are impenetrable, but because there is no big other. The, uh, what will happen decides on how we perceive what will happen and how we react to it. And we cannot, as it were, stand on our own shoulder and include ourselves into it. So I think that maybe the time has come, especially in view of today's 